Chapter 34 of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, 1768 to 1800, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Memoirs of Chateaubriand, 1768 to 1800, Part 2, by Francois René de Chateaubriand. Chapter 34. The Two Indians, Arrest of Louis XVI at Varennes. I determined to return to Europe. Ronsard has given us a description of Mary Stuart on her departure for Scotland, after the death of Francis II. De tel abbey vous étiez accoustré, partant et là, de la belle contrée, dont avez-vous le sceptre dans la main, lorsque pensive et baignant votre scène, du beau cristal de vos larmes roulées, triste, marché par les longues allées du grand jardin de ce royal château, qui prend son nom de la source d'une eau. Did I bear any resemblance to Mary Stuart, wandering at Fontainebleau, when I wandered over my meadows after losing my fair companions? It is certain, at all events, that my mind, if not my person, was enveloped in a crêpe long, sutile et délié, as Ronsard, an old poet of the new school, goes on to say of her. My evil genius having carried off my two Floridans, I learned from my guide that a Bois-Brûlé, who was in love with one of the women and had become jealous of me, had determined with the aid of a Seminole, the brother of the other, to take Atala and Saluta out of my reach. The guides unscrupulously designated them by no very respectful name, which wounded my vanity. I was the more humiliated as the Bois-Brûlé, my successful rival, was a lean, black, ugly rascal, possessing all the characteristics of those insects which, according to the definition of the entomologists of the Grand Lama, are animals having their flesh inside and their bones outside. The solitudes appeared empty to me after my mishap, I gave an uncourteous reception to myself, who generously hastened to console a faithless lover, like Julie, when she pardoned Saint-Preux his Floridans of Paris. I was in haste to quit the wilds, and have since described my companions of that night. I know not whether I have given back to them in full the life they gave me, but I have at least in expiation made one of them a blameless maiden, and the other a chaste wife. We recrossed the Blue Mountains, and again approached the European clearings in the neighbourhood of Chillicothe. I had gained no information on the principal object of my journey, but I was surrounded and escorted by a world of poetry. From une jeune abbaye aux roses engagées, ma muse revenait de son butin chargé. I came upon an American house on the banks of a stream, a farm in one wing, a mill in the other. I went in to seek a lodging and was well received. My hostess led me up a ladder to a room over the mill-wheel. My little window, festooned with ivy and water-iris, looked on the mill-stream, running straight and solitary between two close lines of willows, alders, sassafras, tamarinds, and carolina poplars. The mossy wheels slowly turned beneath their shade, throwing long streams of water from it with every turn. Perch and trout leapt in the foam of the eddy. Wagtails flew from one bank to the other, and a sort of kingfisher hovered with their blue wings over the stream. Would it not have been delightful to have had my melancholy Floridan beside me, supposing her faithful, to have sat dreaming at her feet with my head on her knee, listening to the noise of the cascade, the revolutions of the wheel, the confused noise of the mill-works, the sifting and bolting of the flour, the regular strokes of the mill-clapper, breathing the freshness of the water and the pleasant odour of the pearly grain. Night came, and I went down to the common room. It was only lighted by the flame of the bundles of maize-straw and bean-shells, which were blazing on the hearth. Some guns belonging to the master of the place, and hanging on the wall, shone in the firelight. I sat down on a stool in a corner of the wide chimney-place near a squirrel, which was amusing itself by leaping from the back of a great dog to the shelf of a spinning-wheel. A little cat took possession of my knee to watch the game. 
the miller's wife hung a large pot on the fire which encircled its black sides like a radiated crown of gold while the potatoes for my supper were thus getting ready before my eyes i amused myself in reading by the light of the fire an english newspaper which had fallen on the ground near me suddenly these words printed in large letters caught my eye flight of the king below was an account of the flight of louis the sixteenth and of the unfortunate monarch's arrest at varennes the paper also related the progress of emigration and the uniting of the officers in the army under the standards of the french princes a sudden change came over my mind rinaldo saw his weakness in the mirror of honour in armida's gardens and though not tasso's hero the same mirror was held up to me in the midst of an american forest the clash of arms the tumult of the world reached my ears beneath the thatch roof of a mill buried in unknown woods i abruptly checked my course and said to myself return to france thus what appeared to me a duty overthrew my original designs and induced the first of those sudden changes by which my career has been marked the bourbons had needed not that a cadet of brittany should return from beyond seas to offer them his obscure devotion any more than they needed his services when he afterwards rose from his obscurity if i had continued my travels and lighted my pipe with the newspaper which effected such a change in my life no one would have remarked my absence my life was then as insignificant and of as little weight or importance as the smoke of my calumet it was merely an argument a decision between myself and my conscience which sent me forth upon the theatre of the world i might have done as i would since i was the only witness of the debate but of all witnesses that is the one before whom i should most fear to blush why does the recollection of the solitudes of lakes erie and ontario even to this day recur to my mind with a more lively and agreeable impression than the brilliant spectacle of the bosphorus at the time of my travels in the united states my mind was full of illusions the troubles of france originated about the same time in which i was born nothing was finished either in myself or in my country these days are full of agreeable recollections because they recall the delightful feelings inspired by domestic relations together with the enjoyments of youth fifteen years later after my travels in the levant the republic swollen with debris and tears had emptied itself like the torrent of a deluge into despotism i no longer flattered myself with chimeras my recollections taking from thenceforth their source in society and its passions were destitute of candour deceived in my two pilgrimages to the west and the east i had not discovered the north-west passage i had not carried away glory from the banks of the niagara whither i had gone to seek for it and i had left it seated on the ruins of athens having set out to be a traveller in america and returned to be a soldier in europe i finally succeeded in neither one nor the other of these careers an evil genius snatched away the staff and the sword and put a pen into my hand fifteen years later still being at sparta and contemplating the heavens during the night i call to mind the countries which i had already seen in my peaceful or my troubled sleep in the woods of germany or amid the fogs of england on the fields of italy on the open seas and in the canadian forests i had already gazed upon the same stars which i then saw shining upon the country of helen and menelaus but of what use was it to complain of the stars the motionless witnesses of my wandering destinies one day their look will no longer be weary of following me at present indifferent to my fate i shall not ask these stars to shed upon it a gentle influence or to restore to me what the traveller leaves of his life in the places through which he passes were i now to revisit the united states i should no longer recognize the country where i left forests i should find cultivated fields where i brush my way along a path through brambles i should now travel on excellent roads at natchez instead of the hut of saluta 
There now stands a town of five thousand inhabitants, and Chactas might be to-day a member of Congress. I very recently received a pamphlet printed among the Cherokees, addressed to me as a friend of the freedom of the press, with a view to promote the cause of civilization among the tribe. Among the Muscogees, the Seminoles, and the Chickasaws, there will be fine an Athens, a Marathon, a Carthage, a Memphis, a Sparta, and a Florence, a county of Colombia, and another of Marengo. The glory of all nations has furnished names for places in the same deserts, where I once met Father Aubrey and the obscure Atala. Kentucky contains a Versailles, and the district of Bourbon has a Paris for its capital. The exiled and oppressed of all countries, who have found an asylum in America, have transported thither the memory of their native lands, falsi simuentis ad undam, libabat sinri, andromache. In its bosom, and under the protection of liberty, the United States offers an image and remembrancer of most of the celebrated places of antiquity and of modern Europe. In the garden of his country house near Rome, Adrian caused the memorial of his empire to be erected. Thirty-three great public roads issue from Washington, just as the great Roman roads formerly radiated from the capital. Having traversed the whole distance, they terminate at the circumference of the United States, and comprise an extent of 25,747 miles. On many of these roads, regular posts are established. A seat in a coach may be now taken for Ohio or Niagara, just in the same manner as in my time the traveller took a guide, or an Indian interpreter. The present means of conveyance is twofold. Lakes and rivers exist everywhere, connected by canals. One may travel by the side of the roads in boats, both with oars and sails, in barges or steamboats. Fuel is inexhaustible, for the immense forests grow over coal-mines, which in some places cross out on the surface of the ground. The population of the United States increased at the rate of 35%, each ten years from 1790 till 1820. At the same rate it will amount in 1830 to 12,875,000 souls, and by continuing to double itself every 25 years, in 1855 it will reach 25,750,000, and in 1880 it will exceed 50 million. This human sap makes the desert flourish on all sides. The Canadian lakes, not long since without a sail, now resemble basins in which frigates, corvettes, cutters, and barks are mingled with Indian canoes, as large ships and galleys mingle with barges, sloops, and cakes in the waters of Constantinople. The Mississippi, the Missouri, and the Ohio no longer flow on in solitude. Large vessels ascend their currents, and more than two hundred steamboats enliven their banks. This immense internal navigation, which alone would suffice to ensure the prosperity of the United States, does not in the least degree diminish their distant expeditions. Their ships traverse every sea, are engaged in every species of commerce, and carry the starry banner of the west along the coasts of the east, which have never known anything but the horrors of slavery. In order to complete this astonishing picture, we must imagine such cities as Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Charleston, Savannah, and New Orleans, well lighted by night, their streets crowded with horses and carriages, brilliant with coffee-houses, museums, libraries, assembly-rooms, and theatres, affording all the enjoyments and resources of luxury. We must not, however, look in the United States for that which especially distinguishes man from the other beings in creation, but which constitutes his highest glory, and the ornament of his days. Literary refinement is unknown in the new republic, however it may appear to be promoted by multitudes of establishments. The American has substituted the practical art for intellectual culture. His mediocrity, however, in the higher arts, is not to be imputed to mental inferiority, but to the want of attention to such pursuits thrown from different causes upon a desert soil agriculture and commerce have necessarily engaged his whole attention 
Before cultivating the taste, it was necessary to provide for the sustenance of the body. Before planting trees, it was necessary to cut them down, in order to clear the ground for tillage. The early colonists, with their minds full of religious controversies, carried with them, it is true, a passion for disputation into the bosom of the forest, but they found it necessary to make the axe the first implement for the conquest of the desert, having nothing better than the trunk of a hewn tree as a pulpit in their intervals of labour. The Americans have not passed through the regular gradations of age like other nations. They have left their childhood and youth in Europe. The prattling of the cradle has been a thing unknown. They have only enjoyed the pleasures of a home in their regret for a country which they have never seen, whose eternal absence they have deplored, and the delights of which have only reached them from ancestral traditions. The New World possesses neither a classical, a romantic, nor an Indian literature. In classical literature the Americans have no models. In romance they have no middle age. In Indian literature they look with contempt upon the native savages, and look with horror upon the woods as they would upon a prison. Thus in America there is no trace of literature, properly so called. What is to be found is the applied sciences, the literature which affects the various uses of social life, the literature of artisans, merchants, sailors, and agriculturists. The Americans have little success except in mechanics and the applied sciences. Franklin and Fulton have drawn means of human improvement from the thundercloud and from steam. It was the honour of America to enrich the world with a discovery which henceforth will open up all the coasts of the world to the researches of science and the influence of commerce. Poetry and imagination, which fall to the lot of a very small number of those exempt from the labours of life, are regarded in the United States as the puerilities of youth and of old age. The Americans have never had a youth, and have not yet attained to old age. Hence it follows that men engaged in serious studies have been necessarily obliged to mix in the business of their country, in order to acquire knowledge of its interests, and that they have also been necessarily actors in their revolution. It is, however, melancholy to remark the rapid degeneracy of talent from the early promoters of the American disturbances to those of these latter times, although they are but a generation apart. The early presidents of the Republic possessed a religious character, simple, dignified, and calm, of which no trace whatever is to be found in the bloody phrase of our Republic and Empire. The solitudes with which the Americans were surrounded reacted upon their nature. They effected their liberty in silence. The farewell address of General Washington to the people of the United States might well have been pronounced by the most distinguished man of antiquity. The public record, says the general, prove to what extent the principles which I have just stated have been the guides of my conduct in the discharge of my public duties. My conscience at least assures me that I have followed them, and although in examining again the acts of my administration I am not conscious of any intentional faults, yet I am too deeply sensible of my defects not to be convinced that I have probably fallen into many mistakes. Whatever these may be, I fervently implore the Almighty to remove or dissipate the evils to which they may have led. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to look upon them with indulgence, and that after forty-five years of my life devoted to her service with zeal and integrity, the wrongs of my humble merit will be forgotten, as I shall soon myself be gathered to the house of all living. After the death of one of his two children, Jefferson writes from Monticello as follows, The loss which I have experienced is really great. Others may lose of their abundance, but I have to deplore the loss of the one half of my whole portion. The evening of my life is only held together by the slender threads of one human life. Perhaps I am destined to see the last bond of paternal affection broken. Philosophy, which is rarely affecting, is so here in the very highest degree. This was none of the indolent grief of a man who is exempt from the active occupations of life. 
Jefferson died on the 4th of July, 1826, in the 84th year of his age, and the 54th of the independence of his country. His mortal remains repose, covered with a simple stone, on which, as his only epitaph, is engraved the following inscription, Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence. Pericles and Demosthenes pronounced the funeral orations of some young Greeks who fell for a people which disappeared soon after them. In 1817, Brackenridge celebrated the death of some young Americans, whose blood has given birth to a people. There exists a national gallery of portraits of distinguished Americans in four volumes octavo, and what is remarkable is a biography containing the lives of more than a hundred of the principal Indian chiefs. Logan, the chief of Virginia, spoke the following address to Lord Dunmore. Last spring, Colonel Crafts, without any provocation, slew all the kindred of Logan. There no longer flows a single drop of my blood in the veins of any living creature. It is this which has called me to vengeance. I have sought him, I have slain many. Is there any one who will now come and lament for the death of Logan? None. Without loving nature, the Americans have applied themselves to the study of natural history. Townsend set out from Philadelphia and explored on foot the whole country between the Atlantic and the Pacific, and enriched his journal with numerous observations. Thomas Say, who travelled in the Floridas and to the Rocky Mountains, has published a work on American entomology. Wilson, originally a weaver, became an author, and has furnished some very finished delineations. In reference to literature properly so called, although there is little worth notice, there are some names which cannot be altogether overlooked. Brown, the son of a Quaker, is the author of Wieland, which Wieland has become the source and model of the novel writers of the new school. In opposition to the tendencies of his countrymen, Brown alleges that he prefers wandering in the forest to beating out corn. Wieland, the hero of his story, is a Puritan whom heaven has commanded to kill his wife. I have brought you here, says he, to fulfil the commands of God. By my hands you must die, and I seized her two arms. She uttered the most piercing shrieks and attempted to get free. Wieland, am not I your wife? Do you wish to kill me? To kill me? Mercy, mercy! As long as she could utter a sound, she continued to beg for mercy and for aid. Wieland strangles his wife and experiences unspeakable delights beside the dead body of his victim. The horrors of our modern inventors are here surpassed. Brown had formed his taste by reading Caleb Williams, and in his Wieland he has transferred into his book a scene from Othello. At the present time the American novelists Cooper and Washington Irving are obliged to come to Europe to find materials and readers. The language of the great English writers has been creolized, provincialized, and barbarized, without having gained anything in energy in the midst of a virgin nature. It has been found necessary to publish lists of Americanisms. As to the American poets, their language has something pleasing, but they rise but little beyond mediocrity. However, the ode to the evening breeze, sunrise on the mountain, the torrent and some others are worth reading. Halleck has sung Botzaris dying, and George Hill has wandered amongst the ruins of Greece. It is a pleasure to me who have been a traveller on the shores of Hellas and Atlantis to hear the independent voice of a country unknown to the ancients lamenting over the lost liberties of the old world. End of chapter 34